Hello and welcome to the Corporate Storytime podcast series. My name is Lucas Robinson, the host of the podcast. On this pod, I'll get the opportunity to talk to ASX company leaders and innovators as they run through their personal executive journeys and the stories behind the companies they are helping to grow today. I'll be leveraging my experience as a former stockbroker and my current role with investor relations consultancy, Corporate Storytime. But enough of that. For now, let's gather around, come in close, and let me tell you a story. David Hutton is the Managing Director of Rimfire Pacific Mining, a critical minerals explorer with key assets located in New South Wales. Specifically, Rimfire has a long history as an explorer in the central west of New South Wales, which is home to some of Australia's largest and longest life copper, gold, porphyry mines such as Cadia, Cowell and North Parks. In this province, Rimfire counts as neighbours mining companies such as Rio, Evolution and FMG. Rimfire has also had recent success exploring for battery, the battery metal cobalt in the iconic Broken Hill region. David, you're a South Australian North Melbourne Football Club fan. How did you come to be in the mineral exploration game? Well, thanks, Lucas. Uh, many, many years ago, I think it probably stems back from a childhood that was largely spent out in the bush, basically. I, I grew up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea and I spent all my sort of formative years, you know, running around the bush. So there was always, I suppose, a destiny that I was going to work in some sort of outdoor job or profession. And then, you know, moving through high school, uh, I developed a love for the natural sciences and it culminated when I got to university in uh, picking a, a subject called geology, which I didn't know anything about at the time, but it proved to be rather uh, rather fortuitous. And as I spent longer and longer studying geology, I'm just lucky that it all clicked. And I was... So where was uni for you, David? And, and when did you move to Australia from PNG? Uh, so I went to Monash University. Um, and I spent the first 12, 13 years of my life in Papua New Guinea. So uh, my parents ran tea plantations in the Highlands. So, yeah, I had actually I had my fifth birthday up there in Mount Hagen, and then we moved back after independence, just after independence, and um, just in time to, to basically uh, get into secondary schooling in, in eastern or in um, suburban Victoria. And then went to Monash University after after that. So, and it was at uni that, as I say, I, you know, I just I sort of realised that geology was the one. I was doing a lot of different subjects at the time, but geology seemed to make sense, and it all sort of started to click. And I had some good people around me that you know taught me the right things. And then, you know, after graduating uh, from Monash, I had you know I did some I had some great as I say, did some great work with some good people there. I got a job. As part of the as a graduate geologist with Mount Isa Mines up at Mount Isa, and uh, the first day on the job, I was sent down the bottom of the mine, and I wondered what the hell I just signed up for. Is that right? It's funny, you know, you're the third um, subject to, in this podcast series in a row that started their career at Mount Isa. It was. It doesn't surprise me. It was an amazing program. I mean, I was. I mean, so this was uh, this was uh, 1990. I'd, I'd gone to Mount Isa as a student as part of the Monash University um, structural mapping course through the honours year. I went up there in mid 1989, and I met a few of the the people at the mine. 
Um, and I was very lucky to receive uh, a job offer to go and join their graduate program in 1990. And in those days, that graduate training program, and there were, you know, those programs, a few of the big companies, you know, BHP, Rio, RGC at the time, they all offered them. But the Mount Isa Mines one was particularly special. We all sort of we all sort of came from all over different parts of Australia. We were all sort of thrown into the single person's quarters. Um, and we found ourselves, you know, working underground at an exploration. And for the next couple of years, it was, it proved to be an amazing, you know, an amazing start. And I think one of the one of the things that was really significant about that training program, and I'm sure your other other people would have said the same thing, is that there was so much experience and knowledge working in and around those operations as a young graduate geologist who was you know very very green behind the ears being able to suddenly work alongside geologists and mining professionals who'd been in that mine for 20 or 30 years it was just the best learning environment and you know we're very lucky that you know we we got shown and we experienced these amazing things but also you know like all of this like all of these things you know, made some awesome friendships and some of those friendships and associations that I made way back then still in a place today. Yeah, well, it sounds like a great nursery for a young geologist um, oh, and, and in an iconic mining town. I suppose you got up to a bit of a bit of fun in your rough time. Oh, there was, yeah, that's all part of, that's all part of, you know, leaving home and learning to grow up. But yeah, that was, there was a bit of fun. The in those days, all the graduates, and I, I think that my graduate intake, there was probably in the order of 70 to 80 graduates across all the all the disciplines uh, that started at the same time. You know, in, in our barracks, there was geologists, metallurgists, um, there was a geophysicist, and there was a couple of mechanical engineers. And uh, the barracks that they put us in, the old, what they called the BSD, that was actually originally, it was a US Army base during the Second World War when they used to forward position all the troops and whatever into Mount Isa before Gosh. setting them up at all. But luckily for us and luckily for others, uh, it was right next door to the Irish Club. So we <laughs> we all rapidly became members of the Irish Club and we'd spend a lot of our spare time drinking away our profits, you know. It was it was uh it was great. But it's you know it's character building. We all you know, we played sport for the local footy clubs. We, you know, I worked as a, I worked on the the local Mount Isa rodeo as a as a bouncer on the front gate of the rodeo. Um, we all bought very loud, fast V8 cars, firearms, and very loud stereos, and we used to, <laughs> really? we used to carry on like pork chops. But you know, at the same time, it's it's learning on the job, but learning about yourself and life. And it was yeah, it was bloody brilliant. Wouldn't I wouldn't have changed it for the world. It was great. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's obviously a, a very valuable setting to be, um, you know, in a working active mine. Uh, how did you get into the, you know, the greenfields exploration, you know, going out first principles, sort of kicking rocks and trying to make discoveries, you know, getting into that end of the um, industry? Yeah, well, I think initially when I went to Mount Isa, I'd, I'd signed up, I thought I was signing up to be an exploration geologist. And, you know, the irony was having never worked in industry at all, I seem to have all these ideas of what I thought I should be doing. And of course, that all amounted to nothing when I rocked up. And um, the graduate training program, as I was to find out later on, rotated you amongst mining 
operations, mining positions, and also exploration positions. So I rocked up on day one and I reported to the exploration manager who just promptly told me I was going to start my life as an underground geologist. Um, and so it was probably, I don't know, six to eight months later when they started to then transition me into surface exploration jobs. So initially, uh, my very first exploration job was drilling um, some RC holes around the actual mine, looking at some of the, the shallow uh, peripheral copper targets. Um, and then it sort of evolved from there, where as they sort of realised that I sort of was not going to kill myself on the job type thing, and I sort of was, I suppose, half knew what I was doing, then I was gradually moved into more regional exploration jobs. And so, and then in my second year, in Mount Isa, I then moved into more of the regional greenfields exploration, um, and I found. And I imagine, I imagine that the, the the grounding you had for however many months in you know witnessing um, production from uh, an economic operating mine was invaluable in you know shaping your thoughts around you know exploration activity um, near and around that that mining operation. Oh, undoubtedly, and I, I would I argue strongly that the best exploration geologists are the ones that not only have they seen a lot of rocks and they've been out in the country and walked over a lot of ground, but I think it is imperative. It's hundred percent critical that that exploration geologists have spent time in a mining operation, be it an underground operation, an open pit operation. The key lesson that you learn from an op- from being in a mine is you know, basically what an ore body looks like in three dimensions. And importantly, you understand the concept of grade, you know, um, um, morphology, shapes, weathering, all those sort of important things. And I think that, you know, exploration, explorationists are fundamentally optimists, but we have to, we have to have our optimism rooted in commercialism. You know, what, what is commercial? What's going to make money? What are the key things that, that matter? ultimately when you start to try and mine something. So, yeah, I, for me, I've been very lucky. I've had a number of uh, times in my career where I've worked uh, both in open, in and around open pit mines and also working geologically in underground mines. Um, and, I, you know, I'd like to think that it's been really beneficial for my learning and development over the years. Yeah. So, obviously, that was the early years in Queensland. My, I, I know for a fact that you spent longer um, with MIM in other um, geographies, where, where, where else did that company take you to, and 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 what are the, some of the things that you know you achieved at the projects you were involved with with MIM? Yeah, well, so after after the Mount Isa and the sort of the Northwest Queensland um, exploration, um, and interestingly, I was actually working on the Mount Isa mines property adjacent to the Century deposit at the very same time that Century was discovered. So a colleague of mine who had come through uni, he was on the it was on the then CRA side of the fence, and I was on the Mount Isa mines of the fence. Um, but after a couple of years in Mount Isa, I transferred with the organisation across to Western Australia, um, and the, one of the first areas I found myself in WA was on the uh, up in the Patterson province, which is you know not far from where the Winnow discovery was made many many years later by by Rio. Yeah, Telford would have been up and going by then, well and truly. Yeah, Telford was up and running um, back in the days when Telford was very much a closed a closed camp to any third parties. So we we operated in a very humble little exploration camp uh, just out on the outskirts of Telford. We could see 
We could see the mine lights every night. We could hear the machines running, but we could never go there for a cold beer. Um, <laughs> Torturous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, luckily, luckily, I knew the chief geologist at uh, at the Nifty mine, and Nifty was just coming into production. So we used to sneak across the dunes and have a cold beer at the uh, the at the bar at Nifty, which was always a, a nice a nice sight. So I spent a couple of years up in the Patterson um, doing copper gold. Um, copper exploration all around down around Nifty as well, and then um, there was an opportunity to go to South America with uh, with one of the offshoots of, of Mount Isa Mines. And uh, in the mid 1990s, I found myself in Argentina running uh, copper exploration programs, sort of on the edge of the Andes, which was quite an amazing cultural sort of experience. Bloody cold at times too. Mm. Um, and after a while there, I sort of came back, spent a little bit of time in Chile, um, and then sort of, you know, came back through a couple of the Mount Isa Mines connected operations in North America to do with ASARCO at the time. Had a look at a few of those sort of copper, gold, scarn, porphyry type deposits, and then found myself back in Western Australia. And then from there, I sort of started to branch out into some of the gold exploration work that Mount Isa Mines was doing in the in the gold fields as as well. Um, and as you may recall, my first boss for Mount Isa Mines in Western Australia was closely related to your good self, Lucas. Um, my father, Stuart. Yeah, so he's enjoying a quiet life in retirement these days, but exactly. very much well, enjoyed his uh, career in exploration. It wasn't quite back then. It was, a, but that was a good. It was a good team we had, and I think once again in Western Australia, like in Mount Isa, the Mount Isa Mines organisation, it was one of those beautiful organisations where very young geologists like myself could work alongside very experienced industry veterans, who, you know, were were just really happy to share all of their knowledge. So as a as a place to learn, it was just fabulous. So, but. You know, after all of that, coming towards sort of the back end of the 1990s, I decided to uh, leave Mount Isa Mines, uh, the MIM Exploration Group, and I joined the junior gold sector. And so I, I made the big leap out of a big company, went into a very small company at the time called Forestania Gold. Um, and I I basically joined the junior gold end of the of the sector, and that was my first taste of uh, what West Perth was all about back in the the mid late nineteen nineties. And so I spent quite a few years uh, with uh, Forestania Gold and a, a number of companies that sort of evolved out of Forestania Gold, and that was uh, primarily conducting gold exploration throughout pretty much the length and the breadth of the WA gold fields. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, from Ravensthorpe to Kalgoorlie, Cambalda, Spargoville, Widgemilthor, all the way up to Leonora and Leinster. And through that process, once again, bumped into some very, very good exploration people and was fortunate to be involved with a number of, you know, a number of significant discoveries and things over the years, working alongside some, some excellent geologists that that group employed from time to time. And... At some point along the way, you, you you found yourself in sort of a senior executive roles within some of these junior mining companies. Um, I know you've been this is the, uh, the your, your position in Rimfire isn't the first time you've had a managing director position in a ASX listed exploration company. 
Yeah, that's that's right. So, um, yeah, one of the companies that sort of evolved, you know, evolved out of that whole original Forestania Gold, um, you know, start, if you like, was a company called Breakaway Resources, and we were a, a WA-focused gold and nickel uh, explorer. Uh, we later on have picked up and acquired uh, a very large copper gold project in the Cloncurry district around the Eloise copper mine that was originally operated by Breakaway Resources. Um, and there I was working as exploration manager. And then uh, about 2008, sort of around the time of the GFC, circumstances uh, circumstances sort of eventuated where I found myself being put into the uh, into the MD's role following the departure of the, the previous MD. Um, it was not a planned career transition at the at the time. It was one of those opportunities that presents itself. But yeah, life happens while you're making plans, Dave. That's exactly right, and you've got to grab these things. And you know, I was very fortunate that uh, both the uh, you know the, the the previous managing director and also the chairman at the time they were very supportive and 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 very helpful and mentored me. Um, so yeah, I've been sort of working. You know, in that MD space of junior explorers now since what about 2008. So, I had a couple of years with with Breakaway, um, and we, as I say, we really uh, we did a lot of good work in the gold nickel space and the gold fields. We did a lot of work in the copper gold space around the LOE's mine over in Cloncurry and North Queensland, and that was a bit of a return to my Queensland Mount Isa copper roots, which was nice. Um, and then in 2012. Um, I was approached by the then board of Mithril Resources that was a South Australian-based uh, nickel, copper, gold explorer to uh, come back to Adelaide and take over the MD ship of, of Mithril, which is something that we, something that, you know, myself and my family were happy to take up and we've been back in Adelaide ever since, uh, you know, 2012. Right. And so. So that's it. And so, yes, the 2012 running Mithril Resources. Um, and then that sort of ended a couple of years ago when Mithril decided to uh, change strategy, change direction. Mithril uh, is now pursuing uh, gold, silver assets in Mexico. I, I, that I finished up. I set up my own consultancy business uh, for a, a couple of years. And then about, about two or three years ago now, um, I first became involved with Rimfire, and uh, in June 22, uh, I became the managing director. Having been a, a non-executive director, I became the managing director of Rimfire Pacific Mining, and that's where we find ourselves today. Yeah, that's that's where we, we've we've arrived at Rimfire, which is what I really want to talk about. Um, so, you know, Rimfire's got a series of projects and a long history exploring, as I said in that introduction. Uh, in the central western um, uh, part of New South Wales, where, as I also said, there is um, a, a rich mining history and, and a, um, a very vibrant current sort of um, mining community. Um, what minerals are you looking for there? What gets you excited about the projects that you've got? Um, you know, and, and, and where are you taking the company with respect to the assets in that part of New South Wales? Yeah, that's right. So Rimfire, we've got we've got two projects uh, in the in the parks area. So Lachlan Origin, Central New South Wales. We've got two projects that are subject to um, farming and joint ventures with our exploration partner. 
We also outside of that have two adjacent 100% owned projects in the area um, sort of around the, the North Parks mine and also around the Cal Gold mine. And our fifth project, which is also 100% owned and rapidly expanding, is immediately west of Broken Hill and it surrounds uh, Cobalt Blue's uh, cobalt sulfide um, operations over there. So you know we are we are widely spread, but we are singularly focused on critical minerals. It's all about New South Wales. It's about positioning ourselves into into mineralised, well-endowed jurisdictions and focused on critical minerals. When I first joined Rimfire, the company was um, still still focused on exploring and and trying to expand. A, um, a gold-silver discovery that they had made. It was a successful discovery at the time uh, called Suppressor. Um, for a number of reasons, Suppressor is marginal at the best. And one of the things that attracted me to Rimfire, and it still, it still excites me and gets me going uh, and gets me coming to work every day, was when you, when you looked at the, uh, the overall sort of prospectivity the mineralisation, the endowment of not just the rimfire ground, but also the broader area, suddenly realised that there was amazing opportunities for critical minerals. You know, so I'm talking about, you know, scandium, cobalt, PGEs, um, nickel. We've also got, you know, great copper exposure as well. All these minerals that are required if, you know, we as a community, we as a, as a country are going to meet the global decarbonisation targets that, you know, our leaders have set us on the path to achieve. And the really interesting thing was that, you know, while there was certainly merit in continuing the gold exploration, my belief, and, and I think it's been borne out by our shareholders and supporters as well, is the bigger upside for Rimfire is not in, in the gold. I mean, that's always got a role, but it's in about harnessing and leveraging off these critical minerals. And the thing that, as I said, really excited me was when I looked at the projects, and the projects have been in Rimfire for, you know, a, a long time, is that despite multiple generations of very good exploration by very good explorationists, the critical minerals opportunities as a whole had been largely whatever reason, overlooked. And so one of the things that characterises Rimfire today is we've got a very good exploration team. I've got some very seasoned, experienced, um, you know, commercially minded, as I said before, commercially minded exploration geos. And so we are able to let them loose on what otherwise would be regarded as sort of mature exploration projects and continue to unearth new exploration opportunities. And that's what excites me. You know, so there are still things that we're doing. So we're about to embark upon, you know, drilling programs of new scandium occurrences, um, following I'll, I'll just stop you there. Look, a lot of the listeners may not know a lot about the element, the metal scandium yeah. uh, and its industrial applications and um, its utility, I suppose, as a critical mineral. Yeah. Um, you know, um, we, you and I um, are aware that, you know, Rimfire is probably one of the few ASX sort of exposures uh, for in investors seeking um, exposure to scandium. Can mm. you just give us a little bit of an idea about what sort of a metal it is and, and what it's used for and, you know, its value? Yeah, scandium, element 21 on the periodic table, if you, if you follow the periodic table. It's, a, it's effectively, uh, it's quite an amazing uh, metal, actually. It's not very well known. 
but it is it is sort of I suppose loosely sort of grouped within the, the the rare earth metals in a sense. But one of the amazing things about scandium is that it has these very unique properties that when it's blended or formed in an alloy with with aluminium, it produces a metal alloy which displays superior um, strength, heat resistance, corrosion resistance. Uh, compared to most of the traditional metals. And importantly, not only with that strength and, and heat resistance, it's incredibly lightweight. So one of the consumers and one of the, the sort of the forward uh, projected uh, consumers of Scandium is all of those industries, those advanced manufacturing industries that require lightweight, high-strength, you know, corrosion-resistant, heat-resistant metals. So we're talking aerospace so you know all of the all of the new generations of you know of, of airplanes, you know Boeing and Airbus and all these manufacturers, um, a lot of the new fighter jets for defence industries, some of the marine craft of the world's navies and things, they're all seeking to use these scandium alloys because of these properties that I've just described, and that's and that's one use of scandium. The other real significant use of scandium, and this will continue to drive the consumption. Of scandium going forward is that scandium, when put within what we call a solid oxide um, um, a fuel cell, it's part of the hydrolysis reaction that generates hydrogen. So once again, as we move and as as the world moves to you know global decarbonisation targets and we pursue alternative fuels to fossil fuels, the generation of hydrogen will be really important and the need for scandium to make these solid oxide fuel cells work will be critical as well. So that's that's some of the uses. But the Western world faces a problem, and that is the Western world at the moment is entirely reliant on the supply of scandium from countries such as Russia and China. And so as One a byproduct of, of other metal production, yeah, from typically, Spoken. yeah, that's it's it's very rare, and I'm I'm not I'm not aware. There may be one, but I'm I'm pretty much unaware of scand of like a primary scandium mine. Um, there's a there's a probably a there are a couple of things happening. It's all very opaque happening within Russia and China, but. One of the issues for scandium is up until now, because the the you know the manufacturers. And you know the suppliers of fuel cells and Boeing and Airbus, all these companies, because they can't lock in secure long-term supply in favourable jurisdictions, they haven't fully embraced it. But now, because of you know geopolitical tensions around the world, um, you know they're now increasingly looking to countries like Australia for um, the supply of scandium. And, you know, all the predictions are that the uses of scandium is, is going to just tremendously multiply over the coming years, as they driven by hydrogen, aerospace, defence and all that sort of stuff. And luckily, and this is where Rimfire comes into it, because if you look in Australia, the, the epicentre, if you want to go and look for commercial deposits of scandium, you know, we're thinking about size and grade, the Parks District of New South Wales is the epicentre of scandium in Australia. And the space there is dominated by the majors. And we've just seen Rio pay $14 million US to enter into the, the park scandium space. 
And the project that they bought, the um, the Owendale project, they now call it Borough, is it's, it's basically directly along strike. It's actually some of their tenements adjoin our tenements, um, you know, directly along strike from our, where we're working in the Scandium right now. And as you said before, Lucas, Rimfire is pretty much the only ASX-listed Australian junior operating in the Scandium space. So, you know, the players in parks in this space is Rio, it's Sunrise Energy Metals, which is a, a Robert Friedland company. Uh, Fortescue are in there and um, pretty much there's Rimfire. Yeah. Yeah, well, it and sounds like a pretty nifty metal and, um, you know, you guys aren't the only... Um, uh, you know, may, well, you're not a major yet, but um, it, certainly there are some major mining houses uh, twigging onto um, Scandium as a as a metal of the future. So, look, what do you plan to do uh, in you know the course of the next, I don't know, twelve months or over the course of 2024 to exploit this Scandium opportunity um, in this sort of parks region? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things. Well, first and foremost, we. We've, we've identified three Scandium uh, prospects at the moment, Melrose, Murga and Currajong. Uh, we're shortly, and they're all at different stages of, of, of advancement. Um, Melrose is the most advanced. We are, we are about to commence very shortly a resource drill out. We'll, we'll estimate a maiden jork uh, code compliant resource for Melrose. Concurrent with that drilling at Melrose, we are running a whole program of metallurgical test work to, to develop a, a flow sheet, a conceptual flow sheet for the um, production of a commercial combined product, you know, scandium, cobalt, nickel from Melrose. And we'll look to refine and build on that initial uh, metallurgical test work. At the Merga Prospect, which is uh, right next door to Melrose, uh, we've done some reconnaissance work over a very large maficulture, mafic intrusive complex. We know the scandium is there. We are shortly about to embark upon an extensive uh, air core drilling program that will delineate the extent of the mineralisation and also demonstrate, we hope, continuity of this high-grade material. Um, and we also uh, will later on the year, we'll start moving our drill rigs into the Carajong prospect, where not only do we have scandium, we also have bedrock PGE or platinum palladium mineralization. In addition to all of that, we are you know, continuing to explore regionally within the tenements. One of the things that sets our ground apart is that we've got about a, uh, it's about, I think it's about a 75 kilometer long belt of um, what we call Alaskan Ural style maficulture, mafic intrusions. And it's the weathered skin or the weathered top of these deposits, of these intrusions, sorry, that, have, that host this mineralization. And we've just scratched the surface. So in addition with these to these more advanced drill outs, we'll like keep the the the, um, the pipeline you know generation activities going as we do this regional work as well. So you know it's going to be a busy year, and it's all about basically showing that what we have got is you know as good as anything else in the Western world. Basically, mm. that's a great summary of what Rimfire is up to. Uh, in central uh, New South Wales, uh, uh, trying to advance that um, really interesting Scandium story. Um, moving down to the Broken Hill region of New South Wales, um, where we said earlier, uh, Rimfire has got some you know, really exciting uh, cobalt exploration opportunities um, in a region which um, maybe some of the uh, investors in the ASX will uh, recognise as being the home of Cobalt Blue, another uh, ASX uh, listed company that's having some success with their cobalt project in the region. 
over the course of the last six, 12 months, you guys have really taken some major steps forward with your own activities, exploring for cobalt, um, going over some ground that, that you know hadn't been explored um, with modern techniques since you know uh, the last drilling was done in the 1980s. Mm. What's happened there? Uh, you know, what have you guys achieved, and you know, what are your theories around what you know what you could be onto? Yeah, well. The Broken Hill Cobalt Project is a it's a really interesting and, and important play for us. You know, I know at the moment the cobalt price is uh, not where we'd like it to be, but that doesn't mean it's going to always stay there. So we see the Broken Hill Cobalt Project as a as a countercyclic uh, cobalt play. Uh, we're looking for cobalt and sulfide mineralisation there. That you know, 40, 50 years ago, this style of mineralisation would have had zero value, but you know, you, you touched on cobalt blue before. One of the successes of cobalt blue is they have developed proprietary uh, processing techniques that can now unlock the value. It can extract, literally extract the cobalt from these cobalt and sulfide uh, mineralized deposits. So, you know, recognising that there is value um, in, in, in that style of mineralisation at Broken Hill, we've gone back into our project and we through uh, extensive data review we identified three historic occurrences where you know drilling by the broken hill based metal explorers back in the 1960s and 1980s did in fact intersect at the time cobalt sulfide mineralization but as i said because the technology didn't exist at the time to do anything about it these things have sat out in the paddock so over the last six to 12 months you know, we've gone back, we've, we've now worked up these three targets, Storolite Ridge, Railway Extended and Bald Hill. And one of the highlights of last year is that uh, after getting our land access sorted, we went out to Bald Hill and we drilled a, a uh, initial three diamond drill hole program that was aimed at confirming the, um, the original historic high-grade intercepts that were obtained in Bald Hill's case back in uh, 1980. Um, so we yeah we sought to confirm that the old intercepts were, were real and also give us a better idea of the geological setting of those deposits as well. Um, the program was really successful. All three of our holes hit massive sulphides and, um, you know, we hit some quite extraordinary, uh, you know, widths, you know, over several hundred metres of, 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 you know, sulphide, massive sulphide mineralisation. But importantly, the grades that were returned from the assaying of that drill core were two to three times that of the cobalt blue resource grade. So, you know, wow. we see, yeah, and, and then we see the opportunity is, uh, you know, to, to basically go and delineate what I call genuinely high-grade cobalt sulphide mineralisation. Um, and, you know, once again, one of the pleasing aspects of this is being able to bring geologists to the project that have got you know amazing amounts of experience. And the irony is that one of the geologists that's been helping us out there was the geologist that actually drilled the original holes in 1980 for North Broken Hill. Can't pay that for experience. No, so you know he's been he's been waiting 40 years to go out and 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 drill these holes and it was you know it's was, it was quite amazing to see the core coming out of the barrel with sulfides everywhere and then return the high grade so that's given us a lot of confidence that we have a project in the right address and that we have the right rocks um one thing we have just done and we're just going through the process right now is that we identified um that our neighbor um, at 
at Bald Hill, a company called Castillo Copper, had a number of uh, tenements that they were seeking um, to, to, to divest and they were tenements that were attractive to us. It sort of strengthens our cobalt narrative out there. So we're just working through the, the, um, the final completion uh, process to acquire those tenements. And what that means as a result of that acquisition is that I think we've, you know, somewhere between doubled and trebled the original project size to, I think it's just short of about eight, 900 square kilometres of ground out there. So, you know, while our, our Scandium, what we're doing out in parks is very much the focus right now, Broken Hill Cobalt is a very important part of the Rimfire story. It is, as I said, a counter-cyclic play. It's all about establishing high-grade opportunities. The acquisition of the Castillo tenements, we know that the, uh, you know, from looking at the geophysics, the magnetics and everything, we know that the host rocks at Bald Hill in particular extend onto the Castillo ground. They haven't had a lot of work, but that's one of the things we're looking forward to looking ahead with this project is not only doing more drilling, uh, diamond drilling at Bald Hill, but also getting onto the Castillo ground for the first time with the knowledge that we have gained from our diamond drilling and basically trying to, you know, generate further targets to unlock more value. And, you know, we strongly believe that cobalt will have its time in the sun again. It has to, once again, you know, for, for the world to pursue its global decarbonisation targets and achieve those targets, you know, and all the issues with the supply of cobalt from jurisdictions that are less than, dare yeah. I say, ethical, um, you know, we've I mean, got that, to that whole concept of a of a battery passport where you have to prove the provenance uh, and this, yeah. the, the ethical sourcing of these materials um, makes cobalt in a jurisdiction like uh, New South Wales yeah, um, yeah, particularly valuable. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right, and that's and that's the broader thematic around rimfire is that you know we're into those we're into those critical minerals, those commodities that are needed for the world to to achieve its you know electrification, decarbonisation, all of that, all of those considerations, but they're all they're all located in very favourable, friendly jurisdictions. And the, you know, the, the various state and federal governments recognise that as well. Yeah. Well, it seems to be um, resonating with someone, David, because uh, by my reckoning, uh, the Rimfire share price over the course of the last six months is up about fourfold. I wonder, um, can the North Melbourne kangaroos make your heart race in that same fashion during 2024? Well, yes. I don't know if we can... <laughs> I don't know. You did say that as an exploration geologist, you're an incurable optimist. So as a Fremantle fan, I know how you feel. Well, if I told you I've been barracking for uh, North Melbourne for 50 years now, so the least they could do. I remember the glory days back in the uh, the 1990s. They were fantastic. I don't think we'll get there this year, but I, I, yeah, I'm putting all my optimism to this answer, but I think we'll definitely turn the ship around and, uh, yeah, maybe we'll be talking about the premiership in the next two to three years. Who knows? Yeah, I hope so. Well, they've they've got their super coach and Alistair Clarkson, and I hope that Rimfire's got an equally inspiring leader to to uh, take their shareholders through to glory. Well, I tell you what, if we do, if we happen to get there, you'll 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 happily be able to take photos of me running around wherever in North in full North Melbourne kit. And that <laughs> won't be a pretty sight. <laughs> 
Well, that was a great chat, David. Um, and I think that anyone that tunes into this uh, episode will get a real appreciation for what you're trying to achieve, the critical mineral strategy and the fact that you're in fantastic destinations, both geologically and from a, a regulatory sort of framework point of view as well. Um, well done on what you've achieved so far in pivoting the company uh, in the time that you've uh, you know, been in the managing director's chair. And, uh, you know, I'm really optimistic for you um, as you lead the company forward over the course of the next uh, 12 months or more. Uh, excellent. Thanks, Lucas. And it's been uh, it's been good talking to you today. And as I say, next time North playing Frio, it's going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> Go to the office. All right. Thanks, David. Good on you, mate.